Hey guys, welcome to Lords of Order, a DC Doctor Fate fan podcast. I'm your host, Ed Moore. This is episode 66. We are a spoilers podcast. Although, uh, come on, this being a spoiler from 1942, uh, that's that's kind of a stretch. If you want to send feedback, you can send it to the Dr. Fate Fan Podcast at gmail.com. Leave comments at the website bigtimenoise.com slash Dr. Fate or on the Lords of Order pages as they appear on Google Plus and or Facebook. T-O-T-E-A-L Productions on Twitter. The book this episode is All-Star Comics, the 1940 volume, issue 10, cover dated April, May 1942. Now, this book is set up a little bit differently than the previous nine episodes. Uh, Structurally, the story is typically what we have for the All-Star comics, and I apologize for those of you that have been listening. Uh, This is certainly directed at those that this may be their first issue or episode listening to my discussion of an All-Star comics issue. The story, in order to allow all the members to have a spotlight has an opening and closing bookend. And then each Justice Society member has their own particular mission that they have to accomplish in order to help the whole. So they get the scenario at the beginning. They each go on their individual missions. And then at the end, they all come together and finalize the story. Now, this issue is a little different because of the structure of the story. I'll be interested to see if this structure continues on for further stories. But in this story, we have the opening bookend. Then we have a chapter one that involves everyone, and then an interlude, which is the um, the result of chapter one. That involves everyone. Then we go on our separate missions, and then we have the closing bookend. So uh, thematically, uh, the structure is a little bit different than what it has been. So for the bookends, which has Dr. Fate. Uh, Again, I I apologize. For those that are new, All-Star Comics, I discuss only the portion of the Dr. Fate stories. Uh, There is a podcast out there that has just started. They're two episodes in discussing All-Star Comics as a whole. They discuss the entire book, if that's what you're interested in. It's a monthly show. Two episodes have come out so far. The third should be coming out shortly. So the opening and closing bookends, scripted by Gardner Fox, penciled by and inked by Everett Hibbard. Now, the first chapter and interlude were written by Gardner Fox, penciled and inked by Sheldon Moldoff. The Dr. Fate portion of the story is scripted by Gardner Fox, penciled, inked, and lettered by Howard Sherman. This book, uh, as have all of the All-Star Comics so far, been available via reprint in the All-Star Comics archives. This particular story, issue 10 of the uh, comic, is available in issue 2 of the All-Star Comics archives. That started in 1991, I believe. and I believe it's finished. I believe they they got all of the, uh, at least all the Golden Age things reprinted. They may have reprinted all of them. And I say that because this ends in the Golden Age and is revived for, I think, about 30 issues or so in the Bronze Age. So, we open with the Justice Society, uh, some of the members, however, some of the members, being uh, summoned to help a, well, let me me take a step back. 
On the inside cover, uh, something interesting here struck me. We have a little column called Books Worth Reading. And the book highlighted is Three Indians Bit the Dust, the Matchlock Gun. And we have a little uh, blurb for the story. But also, over here on the left-hand side, says the following magazines all bear this trademark as your guarantee, guarantee of the best in comics reading. And it's a DC logo. And we have a list of what DC is putting out at this time, which interested me somewhat. Monthly, they put out action comics, adventure comics, all-American comics, Detective Comics, Flash Comics, More Fun Comics, Sensation Comics, and Star Spangled Comics. Most, if not all of those, are anthology books. Bi-monthly, they put out All-Star Comics, which is what we're looking at today, Batman and Superman. Quarterly, they release All Flash Quarterly, Green Lantern, Leading Comics, and World's Finest Comics, and then every six months or twice a year, they release Mutt and Jeff. So at this point, 1942, the vast majority of the books, well, I mean the vast, vast majority of the books, would have to be considered superhero comics. I I don't know that I was necessarily aware of that, knowing the history of DC, but only one of these books am I aware of does not include superheroes in some way, and that would be Mutt and Jeff. Just kind of struck me as curious. All right, we have uh, several of the Justice Society members fighting a group of ne'er-do-wells at a laboratory. Hawkman, Dr. Midnight, and Sandman. We have our roll call here also. Hawkman, Dr. Midnight, Dr. Fate, Sandman, Starman, the Atom, Johnny Thunder, and the Spectre are active members. Honorary members, Superman, Batman, Flash, and Green Lantern. Now, oddly enough, in this issue is the first time... It's maybe happened once before, but we have an appearance of honorary members as Flash and Green Lantern are called in to help and actually show up. Not just, well, they helped us, you know, by word of mouth, they say that they helped. They they actually show up. So Hawkman, Sandman, and Dr. Midnight are dispatching some bad guys at a laboratory. The um, professor at the laboratory says that they're working on an air defense mechanism and um, they, they, the Justice Society members that are there decide that they need to call everyone in to help protect these guys because of the importance of this air raid protection concept to give the, the scientists the ability to work uh, unmolested. So Hawkman sends... Uh, Red, I believe he's called. Big Red. Big Red, who we find out is a duck hawk. I've never heard of a duck hawk, but that's Big Red. Sends him out. Now, everyone else in the Justice Society has been taught by Hawkman how to speak duck hawk, because when duck hawk arrives, he speaks, and the other Justice Society members understand him. They all arrive now, so we have Adam, Dr. Fate, Starman, Johnny Thunder, Spectre, show up. The entire active roster is now assembled at the laboratory. Uh, they're, they're, they're given a, th- a thank you meal, all of them, for helping run off this group of fifth column ne'er-do-wells, which it always turns out to be the fifth column, which I think is like shorthand for uh, Nazis in America at this time, I think is usually what that turns out to be. So even though five of the guys uh, didn't do anything, they just called in to help support 
the three who actually did just finish a mission, all eight Justice Society members are given a congratulatory dinner sponsored by the scientists. In the midst of the dinner, they're talking, and one of the scientists reveals that his pet project, which he hasn't been able to work on lately because of this air defense project, but one of his pet projects is time travel, and he had actually perfected it, having gone several hours into the future as a test. That gives Johnny Thunder an idea that, wow, if we could use that machine, we could go into the future where they've already perfected this air defense system, get the information, and bring that back so that it could be perfected now. Well, the other Justice Society members kind of dig on that idea. Hawkman decides, let's do that. But some of you guys are going to have to stay because the whole reason we're here to begin with is to protect these scientists. And they think about it for a minute, and they say, hey, why don't we call in you know, those honorary members that are available? Turns out Flash and Green Lantern are available. So they call them in to help. Well, Flash gets there, finds out the nature of what they need, and he says, well, actually, what I was doing is more important. So let me go and finish it up, and then I'll come back and help. Green Lantern says, hey, not a problem. I got this. Flash, you go do your thing. You guys, the rest of you, go into the future. I'll protect the scientists. It's cool. So Hawkman gets sent out first as kind of a, a uh, exploratory, a front guard. So he goes, uh, finds out a little bit about the future, which is 2442, 500 years into the future. Uh, runs into some issues with the way that uh, he is perceived uh, the way the Justice Society is perceived, the way the, the nature of society is at that point. Ultimately, though, he does achieve his goal, and that is to learn about the bomb defense system that they have indeed perfected. And he comes back to the present with with two two things, basically. One is the knowledge that the formula for the air defense system has been perfected, but it has been broken up into eight parts and distributed across the world, of course, so that no one else can collect all eight parts, put them together, and have a bomb defense system as well. Only the United States can. <coughs> Excuse me. The other thing he brought back was some flight belts from the future because some of the members of the Justice Society cannot fly and they'll need them in order to achieve their mission, which is to retrieve these uh, disparate parts of the formula, Hawkman having brought back the first. So they get their individual missions. Uh, Hawkman writes down so that we don't know. All of the individual locations, hands them out to the other Justice Society members. Those that need it don their flight belts. And this is not like the Legion flight belt. Actually, this flight belt looks like a uh, an X chest harness like Hawkman wears with wings. Only their wings are little uh, dumpy, little like almost moth wings or something. I mean, they're real little wings on their back. Not like Hawkman's big bird wings. And they set off for the different parts of their mission. So we get to the Dr. Fate portion, and he has been tasked with going to the underwater city of Oceana, I believe is what it was called. It doesn't tell us until later on in the story. But 
So he's he's going down, and he's having to hold his breath. So apparently his magic does not help him breathe underwater at this point, which seems like perhaps a shortcoming of Dr. Fate's order magic, I would think, you know. Um, still wearing the half-helmet, he encounters uh, one of the guards of the city. They have a quick discussion, Dr. Fate name drops who he is, but the dude says, well, you know, I recognize you. You look just like him, and I I believe you. I trust you, but it's not up to me. It's up to the tribunal of the city. So we're going to have to go talk to them. So they go speak to the tribunal, uh, and the, the tribunal says, well, you know, we have a treaty with all of the other places that have parts of the formula, so we cannot release the formula, but if when we're not paying attention, you were to go off to try to retrieve the part of the formula, if you ever find the location, I'm not sure what we could do. Hint, hint. So the guard that secured him initially, Carls, K-A-R-L-E-S, Carlos, however you want to pronounce it, uh, takes Dr. Fate home to meet his wife and have dinner. So he really trusts him. And while there... We have all kinds of little wink-wink, nudge-nudge information that is given to Dr. Fate to help him on his mission to retrieve this portion of the bombing, uh, air bombing shield formula. Carls and his wife tells him that all information now, 2442, is transmitted via microfilms. That way you can sit down and watch the film. At your leisure, find out whatever you want to find out. Whatever you don't want to find out, you can just skip over, you know. But all information is available. Here, let's watch this film about our part of the formula. And so they watch it. And it it tells them, of course, where it is, what sort of obstacles you would have to overcome to get there, everything like that. Dr. Fate, you know, gathers that information and tells them, wow, if if only... I had some way to get down there. I might be able to get past all that stuff because uh, the the problem is I can't hold my breath that long to go that deep. Uh, again, I guess this is a deficiency in the magic that he wields. Uh, Carl says, well, you know, we do have a suit that would allow you to do that, but I can't tell you where it is. Hits the switch. Picture slides open, revealing the suit. But if you were to take it and use it without my knowledge, there's probably not much I could do about it. So, needless to say, now with a means and a location, Dr. Fate, at the next opportunity to not endanger Carl's or his wife, takes off. Uh, Avoids the sharks and the octopi that have been set out to uh, guard against the location. He does, Dr. Fate, acquire this portion, which I believe is the, this is the fifth mission, I think, in the book. So it's the fifth part of the air bomb shield formula. Well, the tribunal has been thinking about it all of this time. And they say, well, you know, we can't leave Dr. Fate on his own because he may find a way to get the formula. And then if he does, we will be in violation of our treaties with all the other groups and war will probably start. You know, it, it'll be much more trouble than it's worth. So we need to find him. We need to tell him thanks, but no thanks. Ship off. So they go to Carl's. 
And Carl looks around, oh my gosh, he's gone, you know, kind of reaction from Carl's. So he and the soldiers set out. They do run down Dr. Fate before he's able to get away. They, they capture him, drag him under the water, uh, thus showing that his inability to breathe underwater is going to prove to be a, a weakness that can be exploited by these guys. I don't know that they necessarily know that, but as far as the writing they pull out their ray guns to to try to stop him because physically they're not able to, even though we find out that they are physically superior in size to the Justice Society because they have perfected how to live and vitamins and how to eat well and all that. So they're bigger, stronger, faster than normal humans, which you know some of these Justice Society men are. They're just normal humans. They just have a particular talent. So they use their ray guns to try to stop him, but instead of stopping him, every time he's actually struck by one of the rays from this ray gun, it propels Dr. Fate. It happens once, and he thinks, oh, well, it's just a mistake. Then they really focus in on him because they're like, wow, that was kind of weird, but that must just be a one-off. So two or three of them hit him with the ray and not just propel him away, but propel him up out of the water into the air. And we find out, because the narrator tells us that the man of magic has a body composed of pure energy, which is indestructible. The ray, being of solid matter, acts like a terrific push against the invulnerable body of Dr. Fate. An ordinary man would have been blown to atoms, but the Justice Society member is given a lift to safety. Lift, in quotes. So, he's able to get away, and the last panel of the page of his story. Narrator tells us, with the formula safe in his belt, the man of magic heads toward New York City and the year 1941. As he runs through the air, this is going to become a standing thing with me now. Uh, that's how he propels himself, as he, he's, he's running through the air. It makes no sense to me, but that's what he does. So, of course, we have several other missions, as I am flipping through the book to get to the last pertinent section. The closing bookend, everyone has arrived with their portions of the formula. They give all the portions to the lead doctor, and we start getting, as the doctors are working on this, some mumbo-jumbo, okay? The lead doctor, the uh, uh, scientist, I'm sorry, I'm saying doctor, scientist, Hmm, stereoscopic correlated rays plus negative propulsion rays lifted to include the stasis quotient worked out by Lovejoy and the stasis corollary invented by Gromley that places the strain on the correctalis beam. Okay, that's what we have initially. Then, as they're working on it, Adam is standing there nearby as they're working on it talking about it. He, he overhears them. Listen to this. The karyographic impulses are stimulated by a routine bombardment of microelectric isotopes. But think what that will mean when the horonobilized deuterionic elements of tenretron, and then it just uh, dies off as they're discussing it. They come out with the device, and they're happy, and someone says, Wow, you've done it. Was it hard? And they, they light in again. It was quite simple. Just an adjustment of the homonoscopic variables in Harley's formula. Da, da, da. Okay, okay, that, that's good, they say. So, let's test it. 
So they have acquired bombs, the scientists have, and they give each of the flying members of the Justice Society a bomb. So they're going to be the bombers. They head up, activate the shield, Justice Society members drop the bombs, nothing happens. I mean, they they blow up outside. The shield works. Uh, They can't even tell underneath the shield that anything is going on. So it is a success. Everybody's happy. Everything returns back to what it was, um, and there we go. That's the end. Um, I don't think there's really anything else I want to say. The, the structure of the story is kind of interesting this time, like I said. Uh, I'll be curious to see if it continues on. We have another specific ad for Wonder Woman in Sensation Comics at the end of this book. Next issue that we talk about, episode... 66 of the show, I think. 67 of the show, excuse me. Will be More Fun Comics, issue 79. Thanks a lot, guys. Talk to you then. Lords of Order is a Teal production, and as such is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, non-derivative, 3.0, unported license.